0: Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews. With your host, Aaron Martell. Hello there. I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where I talk about and review a rock album of my choice. Today, I'm flying solo, no co-pilots, but if you're listening and you're interested in coming on the show to review an album with me, I'm always on the lookout for co-pilots to host the podcast with me. There's a few ways to get in touch with me, which I'll go over at the end of the show. So on this week's episode, I'm going to be reviewing Aerosmith's 1989 album, Pump. This record cemented the band's comeback that had begun with the album Done With Mirrors, but really took shape with a follow-up permanent vacation. For me, I'd been aware of Aerosmith for a long time and knew some of their 70s hits like Dream On, Sweet Emotion, and Walk This Way, but I never explored their music and I wasn't a fan. The first album I ever got from them was Done With Mirrors in 1985 when a friend of mine got the cassette tape, didn't like it, and gave it to me. I gave it a shot and discovered that I really liked it, much to my surprise at the time. Looking back on it now, it makes perfect sense, being that I'm a big fan of 70s and 80s hard rock, But Aerosmith by then had passed its expiration date, so they were never on my radar. Then they had the collaboration with the rap group Run DMC with the song Walk This Way, and suddenly almost overnight, people were interested in Aerosmith again. By this time, I was beginning to get the back catalog, so I was discovering the band's 70s heyday and totally digging it. I got Permanent Vacation when it came out in 1987 and liked it, though the sound was very polished and slick and ready-made for 80s radio. I prefer most of the non-hits on Permanent Vacation, actually, as opposed to the popular songs. But now I was caught up in Aerosmith Fever and eagerly awaited the next album, which is this one. And that's A History of Aerosmith and I by Aaron Martell. Now I'll pass along a few stats about Pump, taken straight from Wikipedia. Come on, you know you use it too. Pump is the 10th studio album by American rock band Aerosmith, released on September 12th, 1989 on the Geffen label. It was produced by Bruce Fairbairn and recorded from January to June 1989 at Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver, British Columbia. It reached number 5 on the U.S. Billboard 200, number 1 in Australia, go Aussies, and is certified 7 times Platinum by the RIAA. It's time now for the band's lineup card. We've got Steven Tyler on lead vocals, guitar, keyboards, and harmonica, Joe Perry on guitar and backing vocals, Brad Whitford on guitar, Tom Hamilton on bass and backing vocals on Love in an Elevator, and Joey Kramer on drums. There are additional musicians sprinkled throughout the album, but I'll mention them if I feel I need to as we go along. So let's get into the track-by-track analysis. Kicking off the album is Young Lust, written by Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, and Jim Valance, or Valance, I don't know how to pronounce it, a Canadian musician best known as Brian Adams' songwriting partner. charging out of the gate with this fast, energetic rocker that heavily features Joey Kramer's drums. Steven shouts out the lyrics, which are not very deep. It's literally about him finding places and young ladies to get it on with the Hornet Bastard. The song is straightforward and in your face, ending with a mini drum solo that makes me think of the end of the Led Zeppelin song Rock and Roll. I dig this tune, and it gets the album off to a rocking start. Next up, we get F-I-N-E, written by Joe Perry, Steven Tyler, and Desmond Child a well-known songwriter/song doctor. This one probably comes closest to a classic Aerosmith feel. The band displays a lot of swagger from the dual guitar lines to Steven's vocal delivery. The letters of the song title obviously spell out the word fine, but the letters are actually an acronym for F. Fucked Up, I. Insecure, N. Neurotic, and E. Emotional. It's another sex song, which is always a recurring theme when you're talking about Aerosmith. There's some clever wordplay and Steven gives the right amount of sleaze in his vocals. He also refers to Tipper Gore, the wife of then-Senator Al Gore, who founded the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, a group of uh, concerned parents that was offended by the inappropriate lyrical content of certain music at the time that the children of the nation were being exposed to. There were Senate hearings about it, and musicians like Dee Snider of Twisted Sister, Frank Zappa, and John Denver testified about the impinging of free speech and censorship they felt would result from all this hoopla. In the end, the PMRC did get ratings and labels put on the music, but it also tipped off kids to where the bad music was, and it probably helped sell a lot more CDs. Tipper Gore became the face of villainy in the whole thing, and was an easy target for musicians. Anyway, back to the song. It has an attitude and spirit that reminds me of 70s Aerosmith, even if the sound is slicker. This is probably no, no, it is my favorite track on the record. Moving on, we have Lovin' an Elevator, written by Joe Perry and Steven Tyler. Lovin an elevator, lovin it Yet another sex song. It begins with an interlude of sorts called Going Down, where a sexy-voiced woman asks Stephen if he's going down. In the elevator, of course. It then goes into a mid-tempo groove with plenty of woes and whoa yes vocal hooks in the verses that I'm often a sucker for. The chorus is memorable and catchy. It has a lengthy guitar solo in the middle that serves the song well. I will say this about the guitarist and Aerosmith. They're good, and they come up with excellent riffs and often have good guitar interplay, which I love. As soloists, neither of them will set the world afire, in my opinion, but they usually do a solid job. It's kind of how I feel about the whole band in general. The whole is much greater than the sum of its parts. None of these guys would make a top list of mine based on his individual musicianship, but together they have an undeniable chemistry, and they create some of the best hard rock music ever recorded. This song ends with the music fading out and the band singing the chorus a cappella. It's a good song and was the first single released from the album, making it to number five on the Billboard Hot 100. The music video was hugely popular too. The next track is Monkey on My Back, written by Joe Perry and Steven Tyler. track with a good riff and some nice slide guitar in the verses. Well the slide guitar is all over the song actually. The lyrics for the first time aren't about sex but are about drug abuse and how that needs to be overcome getting that monkey off your back. The song has a decent groove and Tom's bass is really prevalent in the mix which is a good thing. There are plenty of Tylerisms vocal swoops and yelps that are his signature style. I mean shit what Aerosmith song doesn't have them. This song is another winner in my opinion. Track 5 is called Jamie's Got a Gun written by Steven Tyler and Tom Hamilton. They when was arrested, they found him on but Manny had it now that has got a gun she- This one starts with a very short interlude called Water Song, utilizing a glass harmonica played by Randy Rain Rush. Don't worry, I don't know who he is either. This track has an unconventional structure and at first is kind of disorienting as it doesn't sound like anything else on the album. The verses are sonically bare with some bass pops and keyboards used as atmosphere. The vocal melody will stick with you and the lyrics deal with a girl who has been sexually abused by her father for years and she ends up shooting him to death. It feels like Stephen took his time with these lyrics, and he sings them with a sensitivity you normally don't expect from him. Very thought-provoking and quite unusual for an Aerosmith song. The song does head into familiar musical territory as it progresses, and it gains in intensity as Stephen yells, Run away, run away from the pain! It's clear that the band wanted this to be a centerpiece of the album, and it was the second single from Pump, reaching number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1990. Though it's not the type of song the band normally does at all, they actually pull it off well and I think it's one of the better tracks on here. Flipping the record over, or otherwise known as track six, we have The Other Side, written by Steven Tyler, Jim Valance, Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier and Eddie Holland. Another short musical interlude called Dulcimer Stomp begins this track with some Appalachian Dulcimer played by Randy Rain Rush. Don't worry, I don't know who he is either. It leads into a catchy rocking track augmented throughout by constant horn lines played by the Margarita Horns, of which apparently the producer Bruce Fairbairn was a part of. I can take or leave the horns honestly, but the body of this song I really do dig. It has many pop hooks, like the vocal refrain, Take Me to the Other Side, in the chorus. The lyrics take the viewpoint of a guy who's fed up with his girl and needs to break up with her. Standard rock and roll stuff. There was a lawsuit threat by the famous songwriting team of Holland, Dozier, Holland. They wrote a lot of Motown hits, who claimed that the main melody sounded similar to their song, Standing in the Shadows of Love. So instead of going down that road, Aerosmith settled to add Holland, Dozier, Holland to the songwriting credits. Back to the other side, I think the guitar solo is one of the better ones on the album, and overall I dig this track despite the distracting horns. This was the fourth single from the album, and it reached number 22 on the Billboard Hot 100. Moving on to the next track, we come to My Girl, no, not the Temptation song, written by Joe Perry and Steven Tyler. lightweight rocker that I really kind of dig. It's the shortest song on the record and obvious filler but Aerosmith often has fillerish tracks on their albums that are damn good listen and in my opinion this is one of those. It doesn't interrupt the flow of the album and keeps things moving along. There's a good walking bass line by Tom and Steven sings with gusto like he always does. I want to say something here about Steven Tyler. As famous as he is I really feel he's one of the more underrated front men in rock history. When you think of great rock frontmen, you usually think of guys like Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, Robert Plant, even David Lee Roth. But Stevens should be right up there with them. He has that great, raspy, indestructible voice, and can handle material from the hardest rockers to the softest ballads. His Tylerisms, I admit, can be overdone sometimes, but it's a part of his persona, and if he didn't do them, there'd be something lacking. You'd notice it. On stage, he's a ball of energy, running all over the place and expertly working the crowd. He's been at it a long time, and he's got a lot of mileage on his pipes and his body, but the man can still do it. You can criticize him for his sometimes erratic behavior, and his drug use has hampered him here and there throughout his career, but the majority of the time, the guy delivers. He's also a great songwriter and a clever, underrated lyricist. In this song, My Girl... He references Lady Godiva in a sexual way and basically lets you know how awesome his girl is. It's not the best example of his lyrics, but fuck it, I digress. So let's move on now to Don't Get Mad, Get Even, written by Joe Perry and Steven Tyler. Before this song begins there's a short musical passage played on a didgeridoo by our old buddy Randy Rain Rush. Don't worry, I don't know who he is either. That doesn't seem to fit the song whatsoever. Seriously, these interludes are starting to annoy me. The song itself is a mid-tempo thumper that clearly is another lesser song buried toward the end of the album, but yet I find myself liking it anyway. Lyrically, to me, it's about dealing with the troubles and shit that can pile up in your life. Life is hard and don't just piss and moan about it, do something about it. There really isn't a standout moment in this one I can give you, except to say that it's a typical serviceable Aerosmith deep cut. I don't skip it and it's not a bad track. The penultimate song is Voodoo Medicine Man, written by Steven Tyler and Brad Whitford. Another musical interlude precedes this song, titled Hoodoo, featuring a mouth organ played by none other than Randy Rain Rush. Alright, fuck it, I looked it up. Wiki says that Randy Rain Rush is a Canadian composer, performer, improviser, and multi-instrumentalist specializing in new and experimental music for instruments from around the world, particularly those from East and Southeast Asia. There, mystery solved. The song proper has an up-tempo, galloping rhythm. And I interpret the lyrics as Stephen bemoaning the fact that human beings haven't done a great job taking care of the planet, and he believes Mother Earth will punish us for it. Stephen Tyler, Eco Warrior. Or maybe I'm completely off base. Send me an email let me know what you think. This track has a lot of bells and whistles in it, probably disguising the fact that it's not really that strong. There's a lot of percussive effects like shakers and background noises and swirling background vocals. A lot of care has been taken to create a mysterious, almost ominous atmosphere, and it drowns out the guitars in spots, and I really don't go for that. The guitar solo is okay, but doesn't knock my socks off. I don't despise this track, but it is my least favorite, making it Aaron's Stinky Stinker. The album Closer is What It Takes, written by Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, and Desmond Child. A beat, yeah. Tell me what it takes to let you This is the big ballad of the record, something Aerosmith always did from the earliest days, and something they'd carry on with way too much after this album. This is a good one, though. It's about a woman Stephen loves that just uses him instead of returning his love, and he's trying to figure out how to break up with her. He references other Aerosmith song titles and lyrics within the song, something he occasionally does and is quite effective. The chorus is big and hooky. The guitar solo is good and fits the mood perfectly. There are keyboards, but they're relegated to the background as atmosphere, the way they should be. There's also acoustic guitar strumming underneath that works well in a song like this. It's a well-executed pop rock ballad that was released as the third single and reached number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. After the song fades, there's a last interlude that sounds kind of folky and like a country stomp, but I'm tired of talking about these stupid interludes and Randy Rain Rush, so you'll just have to fucking hear it for yourself. So that's it for the Track by Track, and now I'll go into my album rating. For any new listeners, it's a zero to five scale, with five being a favorite album of mine down to zero, which is a steaming pile of shit. And this is my personal rating, how I feel. So if yours is different, hey, I've got no issue with you. That's what it's all about. When Steve and Joe's relationship fractured at the end of the 70s, and Joe, along with Brad, left Aerosmith... The rest of the band attempted to carry on with a couple of new guitar players, and they recorded another album, Rockin' a Hard Place, which I'm sure I'll talk about someday down the road. Predictably, it didn't do very well commercially, and the band was, for all intents and purposes, dead in the water, its members adrift in drug addiction. When the original Aerosmith got back together in 85 and put out "Done With Mirrors, it too landed with a thud, and nobody gave a shit. But thanks to the Run DMC team-up, the band saw a second chance happening and took advantage— cleaning themselves up and getting off the drugs, while going after a more commercial, poppy, glossy sound for permanent vacation. The band got the right producer for this in Bruce Fairbairn, and the album did well while pissing off the Aerosmith purists who wanted the dirty sound of their 70s records. If truth be told, I far prefer the 70s material too, but I was open to this new Aerosmith sound, and I got into the later records for the most part. Pump is my favorite of the new post-70s Aerosmith albums. In my opinion, the material is strong, and though, yes, it has that shiny polish to the production, and the constant musical interludes gets old fast, the actual songs are good enough to make the album a winner. For me, it's less a record of standout tracks as it is a consistent, rewarding listen. I give Pump a 4.5, and I recommend this one to anyone who's curious about why the new Aerosmith became so popular. It's a remarkable comeback story and suddenly the band found itself idolized as legendary and the greatest American rock band. After Pump, the album's become a lot more spotty, and the material is wildly uneven. But here, they hit a home run. Four and a half. Before I sign off, I want to take a moment and express my gratitude for all the people who have downloaded and or listened to the podcast. This is strictly a labor of love for me, and it's nice to see that other people are checking out what we're doing. There's been over 500 downloads so far, which is a speck of dust in the podcast universe. But as we're really just getting off the ground and running, I can't thank you listeners enough. We've had downloads from all across the United States, as well as other countries such as Ireland, Spain, the Netherlands, and Brazil. I thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart and hope you continue to listen. I plan on doing this for a long time, and hopefully you'll stick around for the ride. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on iTunes, so if you're an Apple user and you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it there. If you take the time to do that, I'll read your review right here on the show. For you Android users, the podcast is available on Stitcher. You can leave comments and reviews there too, and I'll read your reviews on the show from there as well. I believe there are other ways to hear the podcast too, but those are the two I'm most aware of. If you'd like to contact me directly, I can be reached at Ridiculous Rock records one word. Records at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page where there is a link to hear each podcast as well. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with me? Shoot me an email. We'll set it up. I'm always looking for co-pilots to host the show with me and would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, and or suggestions at any of those places. Next week will be another Siblings on Record show where I review an album with my sister Shannon and if you have feedback and suggestions to give about that branch of the podcast you can leave that at all the places I just described. And lastly, here at R4 we thank you so much for giving this podcast a listen and a massive thank you if you like and support the show. Take care and I'll catch you later. From the hardest rockers to the softest ballads. His Tylerisms, you know, Ow! 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 Ow!